Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, sir. So a lot of people got back to us about your Wi-Fi SSID issue, and you got a couple of suggestions. Yeah. So just to recap, um, essentially what was happening was I have a local web server running here, and if I tried to access it with a laptop, for example, it would connect, the DNS would work, but then the page would just essentially time out after some time without loading all of the elements. If I tried to do the same thing from a wired connection, or if my laptop is connected back into my house via tail scale, I don't have this issue. The, the page loads instantly. So that's the, the problem statement. And uh, the main themes that people were writing in about, uh, the first one was someone suggested that I have a double NAT problem. I'm relatively sure that that's not a NAT issue. So the theory is that that an access point is misconfigured and that it's possible that I have one or more other network addresses matching the same range and having some sort of um, conflicting resolution happening there. I'm relatively sure this is not the case because the way that this works is I've got three, four access points that are all going back into a single unify switch. And that unify switch then has a trunk line to PFSense where the VLANs are being handled. And so if it's a NAT issue, it, it is possible. It's possible that I have a an access point that's behaving poorly, but I would expect to, to see other problems other than just this. But I'm going to check that out. The other one that I think is more promising, uh, a couple of people wrote in talking about MTUs, which I hadn't thought of before. So that's the maximum transmission unit. If this is misaligned, it means that your request is either going to wait for information that's not going to come or it's going to cut the communication short. So normally the MTU is set around 1,492 to 1500, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. If you happen to have an exceptionally large or an exceptionally small MTU and the other end is not programmed to send the same size packets, you will have uh, problems with that. And the reason why this, this theory intrigues me is because a couple of the listeners pointed out rightfully that an MTU issue would be bypassed by connecting to a VPN because it would override the, the MTU settings on an access point because you're going to get that from the VPN you're connecting to. Mm. Um, so I have a couple of things that I'm going to hunt down and uh, I will keep you all posted in the coming weeks to see if I actually get it solved or not. That'd be excellent. You ready to hit some feedback? Absolutely. Our first email comes in tonight from Joe. Joe writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. Regarding mail in the box, please, if you can, look at how to combine it with Nextcloud. Since mail in a box uses the Nextcloud contacts and calendar modules for its stack, it would be interesting to see if that could be decoupled so that it could be paired with normal or separate install of Nextcloud with files and all of the other apps. Would it be interesting? Would it be an interesting solution or reference? Thanks in advance. So here's the thing. This is not the first time this has crossed my mind. This is not the first conversation I've had about Nextcloud and Mail in the Box. So here's the bottom line. If you're a business and you sit down and you go look at the landscape, you say, I need an office in a box or I want an office subscription. All right. What are your options? Well, you go Microsoft, go with Office 365, Office 365, the new branding, right? 14 bucks a user. And that gets you everything you need. You got Word, you got Excel, you got PowerPoint, you got Outlook, you got Exchange, you got everything your business needs. You can share files, you can edit documents, and you can send email, which is if every business has a special snowflake thing that they do or a, a, a esoteric piece of software that they use, 
in a in a junction to that, they also have this sort of core staple thing: files, documents, office software to edit said documents, and and various files and email. Everybody that competes in that space, whether it's Google, Office 365, companies like Proton, companies like Fastmail, all of those companies that are catering towards that that business unit either center around files or email, but those are the two big things. Nextcloud is an excellent drop-in replacement for an online cloud office. I know that because we have clients that are using it. We have clients that their business fundamentally relies on Nextcloud, and a lot of places use it as a conduit between themselves and their clients. So send me these files, let me share this documentation with you, let me share this project file, that sort of thing. And I see that on a day-to-day basis. So I know Nextcloud performs well there. Where it falls down for me, when I sit down in a sales meeting with somebody, I say, hey, have you considered open source? I can make that sales pitch when I'm talking about LibreOffice on the desktop. I can make that office, I can make that sales pitch when I'm talking about Thunderbird on the desktop because we can eventually tie it in. And oh, by the way, Thunderbird, I'm told, is working on native exchange support, which will be huge. Those That practically sells itself. The people that see NextCloud and they see that web dashboard, they're blown away by it. They like it. They want to get in. The thing that stops them each and every time is conversation goes like this. Oh, that's great. I can share files. Yes. And well, and I don't have to pay per user. It's an instant thing. Yes. Oh, great. And I can self-host it. Yes. Data sovereignty. Yes. Encryption. Yes. Awesome. Where do I sign up? How do I do that? No problem. We're going to do all this. And then this goes away here, right? No. You mean in addition to this new thing, I have to still keep paying for Google or Office 365 or whatever it is I was paying over here? And that's where it tanks. Then people say, no, why would I do that? Why would why would I use this thing over here that I've never heard of until you just told me about it and it's run by you, whereas I've heard of Google, I've heard of Microsoft, and they're over here and they have these things. And oh, by the way, my colleagues at this office, this office, this office, this office, that office, they're all doing the same thing. So it becomes a very difficult sell. That would fundamentally change on its head if if a person could say, Hey, NextCloud is everything your office needs. It'll handle your files, it'll handle your documents, and it handles your email. So you put this up and that becomes your virtual office. And you can meet with people, you can chat with people, you can email people, you can share files with people, you can collaborative edit with people. Everything your office needs to be able to do its day-to-day office thing, that becomes a one-to-one competition with a G Suite or an Office 365. And oh, by the way, it comes with the ability that you own your data and you own the hardware that it's on. So I think there's a compelling feature there. Now, here's why I think Joe's email is so on point. To get mail in the box working, part of the install, it's it's a bash script basically. Part of the install is it literally installs NextCloud because as Joe points out, it's using NextCloud contacts and calendars to function as a mail in the box. The problem is, the issue is, it's super locked down, so you can't actually do anything with the NextCloud instance that you're required to have to use mail in the box. So, a couple things. So, the first is, I'd like to know why. I presume that they have a good reason for disabling NextCloud, probably because they don't want you messing with it. So, I'd like to track that down. That, that'd be one thing of note. But the other thing is, NextCloud has become, as of late November, the new home for RoundCube. RoundCube being the open source email client that's used across many domain registrars. So NextCloud has a bang-up office suite. They have incredible file sharing that I would argue surpasses the functionality and ease of use of Office 365 or Google Drive. Has the increased ability for data sovereignty. They are now the de facto standard for open source email clients that is Roundcube, all we're missing is that back-end piece. All we're missing is a little bit of magic between Mail-in-the-Box and NextCloud, and NextCloud becomes a sub. So, Steve, am I am I out there in la-la land, or is, is what I'm saying making sense? Are you picking up what I'm scooping? I mean, I understood your argument from previously. So okay. I, my objections would still be the same from the standpoint of, like, I still don't think most people should be hosting their own email. Um, as much as I I am a mail sovereignty and data sovereignty type person, mm-hmm. I also realize how critical that is and what the burden 
of effort it often is. Now, your story from the other week about uh, not being able to send Ooh, to Yahoo, which, that's, hey, that swings me. So hold on. So hold on. This is this is good. This is real. This is live radio, folks. So not only has that situation still not not come to fruition, let me let me read you the email I got today. So we are now two weeks into this organization not being able to send a single email to the entire Yahoo domain. Okay. And the email that I got this morning from my friend at Microsoft says, Hi there, admin. I'm admin again. I hope this email finds you well. I apologize for the delay in any inconvenience caused to you. I was on emergency leave due to some personal regions, reasons. I'm unable to reach you. Can you please confirm the issue is still persisting so that we can proceed accordingly? So I sent a very, <clears throat> we'll call it a pointed email, uh, a very direct, uh, very direct email to this, to, to this person at Microsoft saying, Yes, the problem still exists because otherwise I would have told you that it's resolved. And here's the massive impact it's having to this organization and how it's not sustainable if you expect them to keep paying. And they pay thousands of dollars a month for their hundreds of accounts on. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So I, I look at this and I'm like, yeah, this is definitely a problem to be fair. And in Microsoft's defense. I'll have to wait however many weeks this takes to find out what the root cause is, because obviously if it's something that that the organization has done or wasn't configured correctly or I don't know, whatever, I'd have to know what the cause is before I can definitively say, yeah, I'm laying at this, the feet of Microsoft. But I can definitely at this point lay at the feet of Microsoft that you're not getting any support. You're kind of on your own if something doesn't work. So that is a question. Now, here's I guess here'd be my question back to you, Steve. What, if anything, could change that would cause you to reevaluate the perceived burden of hosting email like what would have to change for you to say like oh yeah if that happened then i could kind of see it but right now the burden is too high people people would have to change their expectations people would have are... to change yeah this is not a technical issue this is a people issue i see like the it, it'd be similar to me to be a person that was in charge of making sure that a local cell service stayed up I just wouldn't want to do it. They're mm. just, it's too critical. People are too sensitive and cranky about email and cell phones. Just not happening. Okay. Well, with that in mind here, I guess here's my one B then. If, if it, in a perfect world, I would like to see you roll, you roll Nextcloud out, you click on a button, it spins up mail in the box in the back end, it ties it to Roundcube on the front end, and now it, it does all the things. That in, in Noah's world, that would be ideal. In a slightly less ideal world, I could begrudgingly get on board with the idea of if we were to find some community partner, I don't know if that's Fastmail, I don't know if that's Proton, I don't know who that is, but some community partner that's already hosting mail and is willing to give a sweet deal to... Uh, to partner with Nextcloud so there's some sort of native integration so that, hey, you click on here, you pay this month, and maybe instead of like 13 bucks a month, it's like, I think Fastmail is like four bucks a month per user. That I could potentially get behind. And then there's the compelling advantage of, okay, so this is less expensive and it's yours. And maybe that would be more successful. I would use that personally. Okay. Yeah, 250. Fastmail starts at 250 a month. So like, I don't know, I, like maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something in the way of a partnership. I don't know. But I see what Joe is talking about when he says that it is confusing the way that mail in the box is structured on top of NextCloud. And yet there's a seeming lack of cohesiveness between NextCloud and mail in the box. I'd really, really like to see something like that. Um, but great email. And keep. I'd like to hear from you. If you host your own email, live at snowshow.com, I'd like to know, is it bad? Do you have a bad experience? Because I'll be honest with you, up until a few weeks ago, I was saying the same thing Steve is. And frankly, I'm not that confident in my opinion that this is a good idea. I'm just, the longer that time goes on and the more robust some of these open source tools become to where it literally, like they say mail in the box, they're not kidding. You'd run the bash script and as long, if you're willing to point DNS, everything just gets set up for you. You don't have to touch a thing. As that gets more easy to manage and things like DKM cut down on spam and, and help establish authenticity and all that kind of thing, as that happens, I'm more interested in that route. Um, but 
I'd be interested to hear from you if you have direct experience. Yes, I host my email server and it's great. Or yes, I host my email server and it's down all the time. Or likely what I'm expecting. Yes, I host my email server. It's good most of the time. But when it's down, it's a real pain, which I, I kind of think that's what you're getting at, Steve. It's not that it goes down a lot. It's when it does, it's a never-ending emergency. And you have to immediately drop it. everything you're doing to go address the emergency. You're going to have people royally pissed off because you just can't mess with communication. I I ran my own mail server uh for a very long time and was also part of a team that did it at a workplace that I was at. Mm. So I, I have lots, like when I say lots, going on 15 years of actual hands-on experience doing it. And mm-hmm. man, do people get pissed if their email does not work. Yeah, no, 100%. And I get it. I mean, people's businesses rely on it. I get it. Our second email comes in from Fred. Fred writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, I attend a small church and I want to be able to live stream a camera the overhead computer. Do you have any recommendations for an HDMI capture card with at least two HDMI inputs that works well under Linux? Okay, so let's answer his question directly and then I'll circle back to a couple of other options. The direct answer to your question is the Blackmagic DeckLink Duo. Um, The DeckLink has, they come in a, uh, and their naming scheme is confusing. I think it's the quad is the two and the duo is the one or something like that. So go look uh, at, at the specific models they make a two capture and a four capture. That's the most direct product answer to your question. You put that in a PCI card, you have two HDMI inputs. They'll both show up as HDMI inputs over OBS. You can switch between. Okay, great. So downsides to doing that way. One, it's expensive because it's a few hundred dollars to get the, the two channel one. Second thing is, and the more concerning aspect of it to me, you have no guarantee that Blackmagic is going to continue to publish drivers for Linux. So, I am a little skeptical anytime I'm looking at purchasing hardware if I'm not confident it's going to be compatible with Linux. Now, I say that where I'm going to have to eat a little crow is I've been saying that since like 2017, 2018, and it just keeps working. So there's not a lot of merit. I don't have anything that I can point to to say this is why I think they're going to stop supporting Linux. But they just say 1204 and on, and it just makes me nervous, I guess. So... If you're looking for the direct answer, what can I just buy today, plug in, have two HDMI capture ports, and it works and works well under Linux, Blackmagic. Okay, here are some other options. One, if you want the most universal way to bring an image into your computer, you can't get any more lowest common denominator than USB capture. Now, there are some things you have to consider to include how much PCI bandwidth do you have? Because if you start plugging USB capture devices in, eventually they're going to start eating up resources and eventually the system starts to get bogged down. So if you don't want to run into that scenario, you need to have a separate USB bus for every capture device you're putting on. My suggestion is purchasing a quad bus USB card. And a quad bus USB card will allow you to plug USB capture devices in, but they'll each get their own separate USB bus. And provided that you have enough PCI lanes, you will have the ability to have, I've seen it up to like 30, 40 cameras. Um, So you can do it, but you have to very carefully pick out your hardware. The third thing, and I'm guessing this is going to be out of your budget. If you're trying to stay uh, simple and if you're trying to stay inexpensive, this is not the way to go, but it is the most flexible and it, it does give you the largest road for expansion down the road, and that is to use SDI. So if you use a quad SDI capture card, it will bring in four simultaneous SDI sources. You will have to combine that with an SDI to HDMI converter if the uh, if the originating device has an HDMI output, so that adds a little bit of extra cost. However, SDI can carry 16 channels of audio embedded, SDI does not require have any of the copy protection stuff that's built into HDMI. You don't have to use molded cable. Instead, you can rather use quad shielded RG, uh, RG6 cable and just put BNC ends on it. So the cable is cheaper. It's easier to manufacture. It is user replaceable. It carries 16 channels of embedded audio and doesn't require any of the protection crap that HDMI has. So it is much better from a professional standpoint. If you can afford to do so, I cannot recommend enough that you go the SDI. But if you need the if you need the most basic way to get the job done, USB capture is is the least expensive way there. USB capture pair it with a quad capture card. Now here's one other thought you could do. If you need to capture a camera source and you need to capture an overhead computer, 
you could use something like video.ninja. Video.ninja will allow you to do on one computer like a screen share, and then you can bring that in as an HTML source on OBS, thereby surpassing your need to have a second capture card. So you bring the first camera in over HDMI or SDI, whatever you can afford, and then the second one, you bring that in over uh, screen capture slash uh, video.ninja. So a few different ways to crack that nut. Let me know what works for you. Let me know if you have additional questions. And if you can clarify with your budget and your timeline and stuff, I can maybe get you a better answer. Steve, anything to add? This is way too far outside of my wheelhouse. Okay. I'd be asking you. That's kind of what I thought, but I'll just give you the chance. So 2-Bit writes in and says, do you have any suggestions for a simple, affordable USB DMX controller? I'm just looking for something that I can use to text, test some DMX lights. Steve, have you ever played with DMX? No, I have not actually. So DMX, I think is is really it's really cool. It it doesn't have a lot of residential applications, although I suspect if we looked under the hood, a lot of the RGB lights um, are likely based off of or derived from uh, the DMX protocol. But basically, it's a protocol for controlling lights, and so you can send. To 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 long story longer, DMX uh, uh, appliances will have varying different varying different numbers of channels right so you might have just a rgb and then brightness so it'll be a four channel uh a four channel dmx fixture but you might have a you know like a moving head that has you know it's a light that moves around and so there's an x-axis and a y-axis and a z-axis and then there's rgb and plus there's so maybe that one is uh you know i don't know seven channel eight channel you get the idea you assign dmx channels essentially using binary code, and then you're able to talk to those devices through a, what, what's known as a DMX controller. So there are, there are surfaces like, uh, like uh, Chevron, Chevron, however you pronounce it, has, it looks almost like a little mixer, and you assign each fader to a DMX channel. When you put, pop the fader up, it turns that DMX channel on to that degree or to that level, and you can go anywhere from between 0 and 255. Personally, if I were, so that's one option. If you're looking for a cheap controller, that's one way to go. I've purchased two of those controllers. Both of them died, and I've not purchased any since. My suggestion for doing DMX would be to purchase a device called the DMX King. DMX King Ultra DMX Max Adapter. I'll have it linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com. Effectively, what it is, is it gives your computer a DMX port. So you plug this device, this dongle, into your USB device, or into your USB port, and then the DMX King presents itself as a DMX device, then you can use an open source uh, piece of software called QLC Plus. QLC Plus will allow you to design lighting design. So you can add all of your fixtures in. You can tell QLC Plus where those fixtures are. And then you can control the entire thing from a computer to include uh, lighting cues and saying, hey, I'm going to step through. And so, and so you can have it set up to where as you go along in a song, uh, you can either do MIDI and or cues to say, okay, next one, next one, next one. And then the, the, the stage will change along with the song. So maybe you have that part in the bridge where the singer goes really high and then everything goes silent and you can have, as she's going high, all the lights turn up and go to white and then point straight up at the ceiling. And it has this really cool effect. And then when the band goes quiet, the entire room goes dark. Um, you can set all of that up in DMX and then run it through QLC plus for what you're doing. It might make sense to have just a single hardware controller. Personally, I do the computer anyway. Even if you're just doing it for the purpose of testing, then what I would do is I'd set, you know, a few fixtures up or create a couple of fixtures that you have. And then you just, with your laptop, plug the DMX King in and you're able to talk to those lights and turn them on and off. Steve, I'm guessing you don't, like, uh, uh, you would tell me that DMX lighting and event lighting is maybe outside of your wheelhouse, but have you ever considered anything like this for home automation? Not really. The Honestly, the closest I would get for this is I have LED strips that go up and down the stairwell that light up at night to give you a glow around your feet without having to blind you with turning the overhead lights on. Um, so I'm not really sure because the only other place that I might use something similar to this would be for outside lighting. But if I was going to do that, I still think that I would lean towards doing like um, WLED or some other... ESP based controller that is just talking to individually addressable LEDs. Mm -hmm. 
I, I went to the WLED project and uh, I was looking just to see if there was, if like underneath the, underneath it, if it was DMX. And it doesn't say like, yeah, WLED uses DMX underneath. However, it does have the ability to do DMX outputting. And so you'd have the ability from WLED to define DMX channels and then output it through an ESP. If I'm reading their documentation right, which I'll include in the show notes in case somebody else wants to read it and tell me how I'm wrong. Sounds expensive and a convoluted way to, to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely if your goal is just to turn a light on and off, uh, it is you're you're just far better served to use the LED strips. I think where DMX is really uh, earns its earns its water is if you want to do uh, esoteric fixtures, which I get is not something you do in your home. But I'll give you an example. One of the churches I work with has they're effectively like orbs. They're like balls that can be any different color. And so they and they're on motors on a well. They're on a cable, and then the cable is connected to a motor. So one of the DMX channels is dropping the orb down. One of the DMX channels is driving the orb up. And then, of course, you can change the intensity and the color of the orbs. So you can decorate a stage and have it them go to different positions and make different shapes and do all those sorts of things. The other thing that DMX I've seen used for is with the proliferation of LED walls. So this is becoming really popular, right? You take a Brompton processor and put uh, LED wall panels up. And you can control those. It essentially makes a big TV, but you can use DMX to control things on the LED wall. So, for example, you might set it to just control the brightness so that you can say, hey, I'm going to burn retinas. I'm not going to burn retinas and, and decide where you want to be. Or you can actually I've never done this, but I'm told it can be done. You can control the entire LED wall as if it were one big fixture. And you can have it go like different lights and different intensities and different aspects of it uh, turn different colors. Again, never done it, but told it's possible. So I think there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in that. And then, of course, the ability to go buy pre-built fixtures that are configured with DMX, plug the DMX cable, and then you can control them. So I think there's maybe some advantages there, but not. I don't see any really in in home automation, except for Christmas lights. I've done Christmas lights like uh, synchronizing to music and stuff like that. That, to me, I don't. I'm sure there's ways to do it outside of DMX. I have found that to be the most consistent way just from the standpoint that other people make tracks and write DMX schemes to go with it to say, you know, you know, light source one comes on, then two, three, four, five in this order with this timing. And so, and then they'll tell you like, this is written for this song. So then I can be lazy and just go take the work that they've done, whether or not they're using a proprietary platform and say, okay, I'm going to implement those same DMX cues here and I'll do it with QLC plus or whatever. We will head to the KNOX news or in uh, KNOX, geez, uh, Linux Newswire newsroom. Get the latest from JT, and uh, continue next. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the week in review with JT. For the week of January twenty first, twenty twenty four, here's the Linux and open source news. Kverk five point two, codenamed Quasar, has been released. Firefox one twenty two is out. The fifth patch set to Proton 8 is out, and it brings more HDR gaming to Linux as well as a lot of fixes. The Fish Shell 3.7 has been released. Pulse Audio 17 is out. Wine 9.0 is out and brings improved Windows and game compatibility to Linux. In distro news, the SteamOS alternative Bazite 2.2 is out. Sparky Linux 2024.01 has been released. AV Linux 23.1, codenamed Enlighten, has been released, which is based on Debian 11. The Edge ISO is now available for Linux Mint 21.3. MX Linux 23.2 Liberetto, which is based on Debian 12.4, has been released, with the Linux 6.6 kernel and Pipewire 1.0. And BPF updates have opened the door to Linux extensible scheduling. In security news, over the past month, members of the Hunter Bug Bounty Platform for Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning have identified multiple severe vulnerabilities in popular solutions such as MLflow, ClearML, and Hug and Face. And lastly, in other AI news, Mark Zuckerberg has claimed that Facebook is planning on developing an AGI, an Artificial General Intelligence, and then plans to release it as open source software for everyone. So Steve has been digging through dashboards and you recently started playing around with uptime kuma tell me about uptime kuma and what you think about it yeah so just a, a couple of steps back one of the things that i was starting i decided to start the year off by 
trying to be more professional at home because I kind of looked around like Noah always says the uh, the shoemaker's kids have the worst shoes. <laughs> and I, I kind of looked around I'm like I do dashboards and stuff like that for a living. I might want to do something with this. And I, did, I found out that there is a whole subgenre of dashboarding that I was not aware of because of the enterprise routes that I have. And we talked a little bit about Dashi and how that's a very fancy bookmark minder with some ability to give you indications whether that website is up. Uh, and on the other scale of things, on the enterprise things, you have like a, um, Prometheus and Grafana and you've got all of these kind of like paid for options that are out there that give you everything under the sun. And I'm trying to strike the right balance between something that I'm going to spin up, actually use, and it's worth putting some time into and, uh, you know, going overboard. So I like Dashi. It's still running in my environment, but I was looking to see what else I could do because the my issue with Dashi is that it doesn't really track anything except things that have web endpoints in terms of knowing whether they're up or down. And so that doesn't cover all of my use cases. So I, I started poking around for different style of dashboards and uptime Kuma comes up a lot. And the, what I like about uptime Kuma is it kind of strikes a middle ground between Dashi and uh, Prometheus Grafana kind of combination. So it's, its sole purpose is to help you know whether something is up. And to facilitate this, it has all kinds of endpoints where Dashi had only like HTTP or HTTPS endpoints. Um, Uptime Kuma has HTTP endpoints, TCP ports, you can do ping, you can actually look for specific keywords or JSON queries, you can check DNS, you can hit specific Docker containers, you know, the list goes on and on, SQL servers, you know, tail scale and all that sort of stuff. And so it actually tracks over time uh, how those checks are doing, what the response time is, what the average response time is, and those sorts of things. And a nice little thing for for us home labbers is it actually can be toggled to say go check the cert expiration on this endpoint which is super useful for me because um, even though i get notifications from let's encrypt saying hey you know you got 30 days to go change the thing it's still really nice to see like i've got 85 days of the thing i'm looking at so i know this is a very visual heavy thing so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this but the way that it's laid out is is on the left-hand side, there's a panel with a friendly name and then a bunch of colored bars. And the colored bars indicate each check that has happened against that host. And if it fails, you'll see a little red mark. And I think there's 20 or 30 checks that fit in that section. And it's just a nice visual way of being able to tell whether something is up or down. Um, you can do things like configure alerts so you can, you know, make some sort of action against a ton, a ton of chat programs, uh, email and so on, if you want to use it to set up alerts for yourself. So I'd say if you're looking for something a little, a little lighter than Prometheus Grafana, but a little heavier than, than Dashi, you might check out, uh, Uptime Kuma. My only knock against this is while it is a quote unquote static website, you can't configure it via a file. Like with Dashi, I could edit the YAML and basically cut and paste my my segments and just change a few of the details. This is all stored inside of an SQL Lite file. So what people have done is actually used an SQL Lite explorer and gone in and figured out what it is that the structure of the SQL and and scripted it out that way and then just replaced the SQL file. You could do that, but that's my only real knock is that it's a little bit uh, challenging to do this unless you want to go and dig through their API because apparently there's some API uh, involved and it's a fairly in-depth API, but it it's not the same level as like, here's a YAML file, go edit all of your stuff in there. Okay. So it, but you're, you would say that this is a step in the right direction for at least you and your house. Like I said, it this helps with the problem of I wanted to keep tabs on 
things, specific things. So, for example, the dashi didn't help me know whether my access point was up. This one will because you you have such a variety of things between pings and specific responses that you get through specific ports and stuff like that, that you can actually use this to tell what is actually up. So it does have the ability, you can go in and click on the host and then uh, click on the URL for the thing that you're monitoring. So it can work similar to Dashi, but it's not nearly as flashy. It's, it's like I said, it's in between that uh, Prometheus Grafana and the prettiness of Dashi. Do you see yourself as being the only one to use it? Or do you see maybe family member getting the wife in there to say, Hey, can you, you know, if this isn't working, check here, it'll tell you if it's up or down or. I doubt that, that my wife has much care for that. She might respond to an alert. Like if mm. I set it to, to ping a, a telegram channel, she might respond to that. Okay. I don't think that she would use this. Okay. So this is, this is for the nerds in the house to keep an eye on the nerd infrastructure of the house. Yeah, like Dashi is definitely much more approachable. She's far more likely to use Dashi than she is this because it just um, the the UI is just different. Like Dashi's UI is beautiful. Like just it just strikes you, right? It's a mm -hmm. nice home page with a nice background and good theming. And this is like black background with green bars indicating everything is good. Like gets you what you need to know, but it's it's definitely not aimed at. Let's call them the Mac crowd. Okay. Is it, would you say this is a better solution in, in the event that you're trying to, you know, like, I don't know, keep, you know, I want to make sure that my website is up all the time, or I want to know what the status is kind of that one place to look at one thing. And it isn't as in depth, I guess. Yeah. What I like about this is because you can configure multiple monitors, you could have a ping that pings the host. You could have the HTTP response from port 80. And then you could even go so far as, uh, for example, there was a time where it was really important for me to know that a specific shared folder in Nextcloud was currently being shared. And so mm. uh, you could set this up to hit that endpoint and get the, get the text file and then check the text file for specific text, right? And that is useful in kind of niche situations. So yeah, it's, it is much better at being able to give you a comprehensive way to figure out if something is serving what you expect it to. What's easier to get set up, Dashi or Uptime Kuma? Because of my familiarity with with YAML files, Dashi was significantly quicker because it was just like, oh, this is how ASEC, like one definition looks like. Let me copy that 15 times and just change the host name and the, the friendly name, right? Whereas Uptime Kuma is click add monitor, click to the monitor type, you know, type the URL, type the friendly name, set some tags, click next, right? So user friendliness, both of them have a UI that walks you through the flow perfectly. Like there's no complaints in either one of those. Uh, in terms of advanced usage where I have, like I was trying to load 60 hosts into this, it took me a long time to do that in Uptime Kuma because it's click the button, click, 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 done, click, 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 done, right? So... Um, if I, if I was really to invest in it, I'd say you could probably script out the API with uptime Kuma, but I wasn't going to go to, to that length for my exploration. Okay. Well, you'll keep an eye on it. If you find something that likes better, let us know if you land on something that you say, Hey, the decision has been made. Here's what the dashboard for the ovens household will, will become from here on out. Be interested to hear that as well. Yeah. I'll keep you in the loop as things progress. We get a lot of questions about cameras, surveillance systems, all the like, and we've recommended access, I think, fairly consistently. The reality is it might not be for everybody, right? Their entry-level camera starts at the low end at like $300 plus, and that just isn't in everybody's budget. Additionally, if you have the right networking skills, it's absolutely possible to build a IP surveillance system that never touches the internet and is blocked from doing so, even if you don't trust the hardware. So this week, we thought we would dig into some alternative camera choices, starting uh, with uh, starting with uh, Reolink. And Steve, I know that you had some uh, some experience. You went and purchased a camera. Tell me the story. Why did you? What were you looking for in a camera, and how did you land on the Reolink? 
So there were a couple drivers behind this. So first, we did have a, a listener write in asking about the real links before. And so that was in the back of my mind. But I, um, I'm going to be traveling for a bit. My wife just wanted to have a camera in the garage so that if when she hears a noise, she doesn't have to get out of bed. Um, <laughs> that was the driver for this. Mm-hmm. And so I went, to, I went to go get an access camera uh, because I like them and found that the mounts were really difficult to source. It was really hard for me to find a mount that worked well with, with the access cameras that I wanted to get. And so I started to poke around for alternatives. So my requirements are relatively simple. It needs to be able to be ceiling or wall mounted. Uh, it needs to have a wide enough angle that it covers the garage appropriately. Ideally, it has night vision so that you know, the lights don't have to be left on in the garage or some sort of automation. Uh, and I want to be able to pull it into Home Assistant. Those were kind of the things outside of the standard. I don't want to use an app for this thing. Like that is just a general rule across the board. I'm sure it will shock no one who listens to it. Um, so I I ended up, I, I did a lot of reading about Reolink and there's a lot of conflicting information on the internet about, do you need the app to set it up? Can it do POE? Does it have a web UI? All of those sorts of things. Um, and the answer turns out to be, it depends. It depends on the model. It depends on the prosumer version that you get. So in my case, I ended up going with an E1 Outdoor Pro POE one. And to answer all those questions, it has a web UI. It does not require a at the app. I have no idea. I don't even know where my phone was during the time that I went through all of the setup. I did this all completely uh, through the web browser and Home Assistant auto detected it. Not only did it auto detect it, there are a lot of sensors in here that are exposed individually, which are which is fantastic for doing different types of automation. So it has a motion sensor on it and that is exposed separately, but not only a motion sensor, it has some basic detection of objects. And so the, the three classifications are vehicle, um, animal and human. And those three things are also exposed into Home Assistant, which allows for a good number of automations that kick in. So that was where I started looking for a camera. I want to, so here's what I would say, you know, occasionally, and I absolutely get this right. I've, I've literally been laughed at, uh, quoting out camera systems before I have had, you know, the, you know, they get the fly by night installers. They come in, they're like 34 bucks a camera, 50 bucks a camera. It'll work just great. It'll be just fine. Just, but yeah. Okay. And all their clients come out and they come talking to me after two, three years when it stops working. So access is expensive. I think you get what you pay for. There are some brands I would tell you under no circumstances would I purchase them. I would just tell you flat out, don't buy these cameras, period, for any reason, even if you think you can make them secure, even if they're not connected to the internet, I just wouldn't spend money on these cameras. And they are in order of how badly I hate them. Hike Vision and Dahua. These are not just made in China. They're literally made by the Chinese government. They're literally constructed by the Chinese government. And because of that, they are banned inside of the United States and the UK, so far as I understand it, from being installed in a number of different places because they know there's a security threat with them. So if it was me, don't give people that want to violate your privacy money for any reason. Next on my list is Eufy. Eufy used to be in the yellow category back when they claimed that everything was self-hosted and they claimed that none of your video was leaving the network and they claimed that the cloud connected features just allowed you to get to it remotely and broker the connection into your box and all the things. That's what they claimed. It turns out, yeah, they're actually just streaming your, they're just, you're streaming your video across the internet. And when people found out that you can, yeah, all you need is VLC and you can access this unencrypted video stream from your house, from anywhere in the world, as long as you know what you're doing, people were a little upset, more than a little upset. So they're a big fat fail in my book. And finally, King of the Ring is Ring Cameras. Ring, the company who's well known for giving unwarranted access to police departments to people's personal cameras without their permission, has since reconsidered that decision. Now they don't give you a reason why, they don't but they've just decided to stop. Do I, does that make me think any more of ring? No. Why? Because they can just turn the button back on 
and that's a presuming that they actually don't have access to it, which I have no way of verifying. I was talking to one of the guys that works at Ultra Speed Technologies today, and I, I just I was like, just brain check me on this. If you had the choice between buy, and I was going through some of these brands, I'm like, would you buy, would you buy? And effectively, the answer I got back is there just isn't a good reason to trust these companies because you can go buy a camera from a reputable manufacturer that doesn't want to spy on you, doesn't want to send your information up to any particular server, and you can just connect it to your LAN and use it. And the, so Hike Vision, Dahua, Yuffie, Ring, stay away, all circumstances, there is no redeeming, there's nothing redeeming about them. And you can buy a used access camera for cheaper than those anyway. So if you're looking for the best bank for, or for the, you know, for to, to get a, uh, you know, budget, con, uh, budget friendly deal, you can do better than these cameras in this yellow category. So this is, I would say, they're a good bang for the buck. Are they premium cameras? Are they going to last 10 years and get up firmware updates for 10 years? Who knows? But if, you're, if you know what you're doing from a network perspective and can segment them off into a network, I believe you can make them just as secure uh, as, as, as secure as it can possibly be. I mean, so there's that stamp. There's that part of it. The second part of it is some of these are more budget friendly, and I think that can appeal to some people. The third thing is, and as Steve pointed out or will point out, the tie back to the open source community to make sure that the people that are working on home projects and automation projects have access to the APIs that these cameras are using. So rules when purchasing a camera, follow a standard, stay away from the special snowflakes. So Steve, I understand that when you were looking for ONVIF compatible cameras, the real links absolutely meet those needs, but there's specific models that you have to purchase to get those features. Yeah. So OnVIF is definitely not in all models, just like it, you, there are models that require you to use the application, like the app on your phone. So one of the things that I went looking for was what is the community around this? What's it look like? And I discovered that there is a GitHub repository called Real Link Camera API. And this is actually supported by Real Link. It's done by the community. They have, they have a community sponsor and everything like that, but it is done with the full cooperation of Real Link and it's a PyPy API for it, which I assume is what uh, Home Assistant is actually using in order to connect properly. The, the Real Link integration was really really slick like i haven't had a better user experience mm -hmm. and that's saying something but part of what gave me the feel goods about attempting to buy a real link was i found this api um, on PyPy, and then went digging through to figure out which ones of the cameras could had on vif and had the api kind of exposed so it is a buyer beware you can't just go grab any uh, real link, especially ones that are Wi-Fi only, I would stay away from those if that is important to you. But if you get ones that are, are POE based and stuff like that, they, from my experience, from what I looked at, I did obviously didn't look at all of them. But the ones I did look at, every one that was POE based had the web, like a local web UI, had OnVIF and had the API enabled on them. 1-855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. You can join the program, ask your questions, or give us comments on what we're talking about. So the other brand that I guess I would draw to everybody's attention is GeoVision. So GeoVision, I believe they're Taiwanese. And like RioLink, they are an inexpensive alternative that complies with ONVIF standards. So you're going to get an ONVIF compatible camera it's going to have a built-in microphone um it's going to be less expensive because they i think their entry-level model starts at like 90 bucks so it's an inexpensive alternative to higher-end cameras that perform well enough so you need one in your warehouse or you need one in your business or maybe you don't care if it's getting onto the internet maybe it doesn't matter to you because there isn't a privacy aspect it's hey i want cameras on the outside of my building the more people watching and paying attention to it the better that that to me is where some of these start to make a little bit of sense what will be interesting and i'll be interested to track your experience in particular steve is the longevity of the camera. So I would evaluate longevity in two ways. One is how long does the camera physically last? Like does it last a year, five years, 10 years before it craps out? Or 
The second part is when do they stop supporting it? I put the supporting it second to crapping out because at the end of the day, if we just pretend that it's an analog camera, we ran special wire for our analog cameras. We never expected them to get updated or be on the internet or anything like that. So if we hold new IP cameras to those same standards and compare apples to apples, as long as you don't need to get to it on the internet, there's no reason you can't segment it off. And if you want to get more advanced and you know what you're doing with networking, you could absolutely build an offline network that connects all the cameras. The NVR, DVR, Home Assistant, whatever it is, has two legs. One leg sits on the camera network so it can ingest feeds and the other legs of Home Assistant or your NVR sits on the public you know, network that has access to the internet so that you can access the NVR, but not the cameras through the internet. So I, I think there's ways to mitigate what security risks would be there, even if they didn't provide updates. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that, the, that this is going to take any kind of a beating. Like I joked in the pre-show with, with Noah and the team that you could absolutely bludgeon someone with an access <laughs> camera and, and the camera would be fine. Uh, you definitely cannot do that with a real link. Like it felt solid enough, but I also like when I was dealing with the access camera, I was like balancing it precariously on two fingers and like, <laughs> you know, doing this sort of stuff. And with, with the real link, I was like, I don't even want this thing to accidentally bump into the wall hanging off the mm. internet cable. Like mm -hmm. it, it was sitting on solid ground the entire time uh, because I didn't trust that I wasn't going to break it. Uh, so as long as it continues to function, it will serve its purpose for me. I will do exactly what Noah said. As soon as it's out of support, I will just yank it from anything that has any kind of internet access. Like right now, it's just hanging out. All of my IoT devices have internet access in some form, but can only get out to the internet and they've got really, really throttled. Um, and I'm okay with that because uh, there are updates and stuff like that. So for example, Home Assistant can update the firmware on this device, which I thought was really wow. a slick integration. So there there are legitimate uses to doing this, uh, giving some small amount of internet access. So when, when the time comes, I will just treat it like everything else and shunt it off into the you can't have internet kind of bucket. Yeah, and I think if you're willing to do that, I, the, the argument for having cameras with with long updates or long update cycles kind of starts to fade away, right? The two reasons we care about that are one, it's a security aspect, and then two, compatibility and workability with other devices. So that is to say, you know, when you're doing motion detection on the camera, that motion detection plugin gets better every time Access releases a new version of it. And so it's beneficial to be able to download it and get it to run on, on the camera. So there, there's there's benefit there, but sometimes good enough is good enough. And particularly like in your situation where you're talking about a garage cam, who cares? It's not going to get, like you say, nobody's going to beat on it. It's not going to be an extreme, I mean, any more extreme weather than we would get in this area of the country on the other side of an insulated garage wall, but like, it'll be good enough. Yeah. Yep. And that's all that I needed. And for, I got it on sale for 80 bucks. Normally it's 120 and for 80 bucks, I was like, yeah, you know, it's going to do its job. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention before we signed off, I, I was really surprised at, you don't have to have an NVR in order for this thing to kind of chug along. So it's got really? an FTP setting. Um, and there are two modes. One is send the video as soon as you detect motion, or you can literally just tell it every, like record everything. And every time you hit a certain file size, ship this off to the FTP server, sadly using FTP. But um, in my test, it was producing about three and a half gigs an hour, um, just constantly feeding it. And so you don't have to have an NVR in order to make sure that you're recording everything that the camera is seeing. I love it. And that has some other, you know, uh, f uh, other features insofar as like you have the ability to like, let's say you want to record in a garage or in a shed or something like that. You can you can do some of those things, even if it's offsite and you have limited bandwidth. All right, the music in our ears, you know what it means. It means we're out of time, but you can catch the whole show and its show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com, plus the back catalog. Follow us on Twitter, on X. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next week, next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.